Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you are our rock, you are our redeemer. Amen. Ooh, all right, can you put yourself into this picture a little bit? There's 80,000 people gathered around to watch the game, and all of a sudden, 80,000 people stand up and they start screaming and cheering because their team just scored the go-ahead goal. You look around you, and you see people just giving high fives to each other and pumping their arms, yes. You see absolute pure joy on people's faces at the reaction. And then, after all that celebration, when the game keeps going and it gets restarted at the midfield with the kickoff going there, then you hear the chants start to begin in this just amazing way. 80,000 people automatically just know we are going to divide at this point, and half of the stadium you hear yell as loud as they can, Atlanta! And then, without skipping a beat, 40,000 people on the other side of the stadium respond, United. And then the chant starts to roll, Atlanta, United. Atlanta, United. And you'd figure it'd be like two or three times, but no, this keeps going for minutes. Atlanta, United. Atlanta, United. 80,000 people strong, and you know that everybody in this stadium, this is their team. They're going to be united behind it. Joanna and I got to experience how strongly people feel about their major league, their MLS uh, soccer team in Atlanta. They love it. And you can tell. From uh, the t-shirts, to the hats, to the really cool soccer football scarves, to the cups, to the flags, to the colors that people paint their houses that are kind of close by there, people in Atlanta support this team fiercely. And they love the name of the team. This isn't just Atlanta Soccer Club. This is Atlanta United. This is the one team. For anybody who lives in the Atlanta area, this is the team that everybody agrees we can actually support. We can come together. This is the one thing that's going to bring us together as a city. Even if they don't agree with every decision that the organization makes or the moves or the strategy, people stay behind this team. Because if you live in Atlanta, Atlanta United is your team, and you're united behind it. Unity is something that's just built into this team and this fan base, and it's really cool when you get to see it and experience it and maybe even be a little part of it. But I know it's not just one sports team in one place. No, this, this is kind of the culture around sports in our country and in our lives. You've got your team, and you will die to support your team. You watch them from afar. You go with thousands of other people to a game in person. And it's something that creates this real and unique bond between absolute strangers. If you see somebody else wearing your team's shirt, you go up and you give them a high five. You say, me, bucks and six. This is your team. You're united. It doesn't matter where. If you're a fan of blank, then you're one of us. We're united. We're in this thing together. 
I think what's a bit crazy is that it looks like sports has this singular ability to bring people of all different backgrounds and ways of life and bring them together like nothing else can. Because more than cheering for the same team, Christians are united. Our unity is so much more than just coming together and blending our voices and singing together. It's more than just a little bit of time together, a week where we see each other in person. It's something that creates a real and unique bond between absolute strangers. So as we get excited this summer, we're going to dive deep into this unity, and we're going to dig far into the ways that we are united. Our worship this summer is going to leave you with an image like this, but it's of Christians united Christians united in Jesus. As I was thinking about what we were going to do this summer and kind of the topic unity and being united was the one that we picked. 1 Corinthians was the easiest book. Of course, this is what we're going to talk about. This is what we're going to look at. Uh, you can read through the whole letter of 1 Corinthians in an hour or two if you read through pretty slowly. And I'm going to encourage you every week to do it, to read through the whole letter the week before, and you're going to be able to do it. And what you're going to see every time you read through it this summer is that unity absolutely is part of all of this. Unity is a big theme that's going to connect every other little piece into the book. You're going to see lots of other details in there, but unity is the thing that's going to stand out. And you would figure then that unity between this group of Christians in the city of Corinth must be something that is amazing and outstanding, and unbelievable, and perfect. And then later today, you're going to open up, and you're going to get into the first chapter, and it's going to take you, I think, about 24 verses, and you're going to see that 1 Corinthians isn't because these people had such a great example of unity. These people were far from together. They had jealousy. They had divisions. They had favorite teachers. They had exclusive groups going on by social status, by how much money you had. Some people who were part of this church wouldn't even look at each other. They won't even talk to each other. So it's because they're far from together that God starts us out with the most basic things through his word and he starts to bring them back together into what they should be. Today we start with part one. You heard the theme for today. Christians are united by thinking about something crazy. If you believe in Jesus, you're a little bit crazy. There's where Paul starts. For the message of the cross is foolishness. Now, we read through it before. The period isn't in there. But you could take these words and you could do a period, a full stop going on here. The message of the cross is foolishness. God starts here. From the outside, looking in. Christianity makes no sense. God sends his son, Jesus, who lives a perfect life and obeys all of God's laws perfectly. And then he's going to take the punishment for people who break God's laws and who disobey. God loves sinners 
unconditionally and shows them grace when they absolutely don't deserve grace? Jesus, who is God, takes the form of a human being and he suffers on a cross, hanging there, looking like the lowest of the low, like the scum of the earth, and that's God's plan to save us? If you believe in the message of the cross and Christianity, from the outside looking in, something looks off here. It's pretty interesting, too. Other parts of the Bible don't seem to match up with this either. There is so much of the Bible where God gives practical, useful, learning, wisdom kind of ideas. Another part of God's word that you can read through this, this month, usually you can do it in uh, 30 days, one chapter. It'll take you like three, maybe four minutes to read through a chapter. Uh, read through the book of Proverbs. Go through it chapter by chapter, one a day for this month. You've got to catch up on a few. But I promise you, by the end of the month, you are not going to think that God is dumb. You are not going to think that God doesn't give us wisdom for our lives. No, you're going to see that the cross and this message doesn't seem to match up with the wise God and the wisdom that he gives to people. You're also going to see the message of the cross doesn't seem to match up with the wisdom that's in our world around us either. You can feel this emphasis on intelligence and learning, right? It's a really fitting day that we get to celebrate people as they just graduated from whatever levels of school that they graduated from because intelligence is a big focus for our culture. I mean, we spend years, decades of our lives centered around learning and understanding. We put ourselves deeper into debt for higher learning and going to college. We think that the more that you can get up into here, well then, the better your life is going to be. The better life is going to be for the people that are around you and in your family. And the more that you learn and you get up into here, the more you start to see pretty clearly that this, the message of the cross, it just doesn't make much sense. That's why unity has to start for us by believing in foolishness. But let's admit, it's not just something that's out there. It's something that we got going on in here, too. That we have issues with God's ways of doing things. Because when the disaster hits and our hearts hurt, we question God, and that's okay. But then we let it turn to bitterness about how could God let this happen. When we get phone calls and we listen to people as they pour out their heart and they tell us that they don't have what they need to live, that they just need help to have a hotel for one night and we can't help them and nothing else seems to be able to help them, we start to wonder how God can let this be part of his plan for people that he loves and when God calls us away from whatever sin we're struggling with, a sin that's hurting ourselves, a sin that's hurting our families, this little voice pops up inside of us and says, you're doing pretty good at everything else. You've lived the rest of your life in a pretty Christian, a good way. So this one thing, you can do that. You deserve that thing. It, it's really okay. 
And we've got this issue that there's this side of us that wants to start to base our faith and our trust mostly on God's wisdom, but then it starts to shift a little bit more on us. And we can start to think that our ways are higher and smarter than God's ways. I had a couple conversations this week that sent me back into thinking about skydiving and getting really excited to do it again. I'm doing it again. It's going to happen. Again, anybody that wants to join me, come. It'll be fun. It'll be good. Uh, I'm excited because it's not going to be in this farm field in the middle of Wisconsin, but 10,000 feet looking out over the city, looking out over the ocean. It's going to be awesome and beautiful. But because I was thinking about it and working on the sermon, I really started thinking about how much we take people at their words when we go skydiving. Because really, what, what do people tell you? You go and you stand there for training and they tell you that you're going to go and get into this plane and it's going to fly you, I don't know, 10 minutes up to 10,000 feet and all of it's going to go okay. And then you get in this little metal tube that's got wings and jets or propellers and that's supposed to keep you safe? They tell you that uh, just a couple straps. I think the first time I did it, it was maybe four or five straps that they're going to put it on you They'll tighten it. They'll check it once, and then it's all okay. We don't have to check it again. You're not going to fall out. You're not going to free fall back to the earth. Don't worry. It's going to be all good. They tell you that, well, the tandem partner behind you, if anything goes wrong, they know what's going on. They know what they're supposed to do. If the first chute, for whatever reason, doesn't open, they're there. They're going to pull the secondary chute. It's going to be good. It'll catch. It'll be good. And you go through this training, and you hear what people tell you, and you just kind of are left with, really? I'm going to trust them and what they're saying to do all of this? That seems a little bit crazy. And then there's people like me that like to do this and think that this is fun. So many parts of our lives, we have to take people at their word, and it can be a life or death thing but so much more than taking a skydiver's instruction at his word. We take God at his word. And we trust it. We trust in him and his plan to save us. And this is the first layer of unity that builds everything else on top of it. So let's start here. This is what God says through Paul, for it is written, I, God, will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? God tells us he is just above human thinking. People can't and shouldn't compare. The smartest of the smart of us don't come close. Any wisdom apart from God's wisdom doesn't just look dumb. It is dumb. And God's ready to admit in his wisdom that his plan looks absolutely foolish from a human perspective. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. He calls his way foolish, but he tells us that this is the way that saves. This is what we Christians trust in. In his better wisdom, he centers all of Christianity on Christ crucified for sinners. 
this is what we believe. We are united by trust that Jesus did die in our place. That, like the kids know, our sins have been paid for. That we are forgiven because God's word says we are forgiven. And we trust in this. Nothing else in the rest of the Bible matters unless it's centered on this singular truth that God's crazy plan to save us was in the cross. Without this, nothing else makes sense. Do you remember the Old Testament guy whose name was Elijah? Elijah was an Old Testament prophet. So basically, he was someone who relayed God's messages to God's people. And he did pretty good at it. Considering the rough circumstances he had, uh, God told Elijah to go to the king and the queen at the time and confront them with their sin. Go and tell them that what they're doing is wrong. Go and tell them that they need to change their lives. Elijah, you go tell them. So he does. And after he confronts them and tells them what they're doing is wrong, the queen makes a promise and a vow, you will die. As long as I'm alive, if you're alive, Elijah, I'm coming after you. I'm going to kill you. You're done. So Elijah runs away. He gets out into the wilderness. He climbs up onto this mountain, goes into this cave and says, God, okay, if this is the way it is, I'm ready to die. And then God, he decides to change Elijah. He knows that his spokesperson needs to have this trust in God and God's word and God's ways. So he says, I'm going to come and I'm going to appear to you, Elijah. And as he's sitting there in this cave, first there's this powerful wind that comes. It's described as a wind that comes and breaks and shatters rocks into pieces. Not a little wind, but this powerful wind. And God's not in the wind. And then as he's sitting there in the cave, his ground underneath him starts to shake. The whole mountain starts to move because there's this massive earthquake that happens. And God isn't there in the earthquake. Then there's this massive fire that comes and rages up. It's kind of like all around the entire mountain. And this fire is all consuming. And you would assume, okay, now God's there. And in the fire, no, God doesn't reveal himself there. But it's after this that it's described as this still small voice, this little whisper thing that God comes to Elijah and he tells him, this is who I am. God has all this ability to do all of these amazing and powerful things. And what's the way that God chooses to reveal himself? Through this still small whisper. This is God's way of doing stuff. It's not that crazy, then, that God's plan to save us, if he does stuff in a different way, looks foolish. God doesn't do what we expect. Jews demand signs, like physical miracles. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preached Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's such a good thing that God doesn't do what we expect. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. We can just admit it. His way is better. He's stronger. He knows more. So what do we believe? Simply, in what God says, 
this is the first way, the basis for everything. This is how we have to know that we're united. I think you've had the experiences too, the you had to be there and be part of it kind of moment in life. The thing that brought the group together and then kept the group together, it was the initiation that left you terrified at the start. It was the food poisoning where you all suffered together and all went through it together. It was the mission and the sacrifices that it took to accomplish what you needed to accomplish. It was the team that you played for and all the ways that you spent your time and your efforts and you set aside these other things for the good of the team. You've been there. Some things in our lives, when people experience and do them together, and you get to be a part of it, unity just comes naturally after that. So I think we can say that experiencing God's plan could work the same way for us. So let's do it this summer. Let's take time and go through this thing together. Let's dig deeper into God's foolishness. You can turn your daily devotional time in God's word into a group thing by just having a group text. By just sharing one encouragement with one person that you got from God's word and telling somebody else about it. Make plans this summer. Get committed to one of our life groups. Make plans to start a new life group and bring other people in and do it with you. Be in God's word. Let God give you unity. I mean, on the ride home from this, Think through the ways that God's word is hitting you right now and then talk about it. Ask somebody else in the car what they thought too. Give God's foolishness some time and some effort this summer and let's see how united he makes us. Because God's foolishness isn't some weak thing that doesn't really make sense. No, to us who are being saved, this is the power of God. In the foolishness is God's power to change our hearts, to trust in him and what he's done. In the foolishness is God's power to bring us together and unite us like nothing else can. And so united in foolishness, this is where we start. We're united by belief in something that's crazy, but something that won't let us down. Jesus died for you. The cross is God's symbol of how he feels for you and the forgiveness that he won for you. It's this foolishness that is the center of all of Christianity. So let's work on being united by first admitting that God's plan to save is above us and that we're united in knowing that we're okay with that. Amen.